It's really nice to see here. It's always nice to be here and, and worship with every one of you guys. If you're a guest, you're a visitor, you're an honored guest. We love, to, we love seeing you guys. Let's go ahead and read from the passage on the screen. Isaiah 58, verse 6. It says, It's not this, the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 4, and as we do, I want us to think about this passage here on the screen. We're continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, talking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And as we do turn over to Luke 4, and we're thinking about this passage, this is a prophecy of Jesus from Isaiah. And as we're going into the new year, I mean, if we're not ready, it's here whether we like it or not, we need, it, we need to be ready. And we may feel like, man, there's this heavy yoke or burden on us, whatever that is. We may wonder, like, I don't know how I'm going to restart. I don't know how I can start over. I'm just burdened by too much. Maybe we're busier than ever. Maybe there's a sin in my life that's just weighing me down. The yoke is just too heavy. We're going to see tonight how Jesus frees those that are oppressed. I know when you're turning over to Luke 4 and you're seeing those those titles there, and you're seeing, oh, Jesus tempted in the wilderness. I've heard every sermon under the sun about this passage here. I, I thought the same thing as well. We don't want to overlook this passage at all. It's very powerful. But we can usually see that, and we can, in our minds, kind of get the gist from sermons that we have probably heard in the past, where we think, okay, Okay, if we're going to overcome temptation, then I need to you know, know my scripture as well as Jesus did so that I can resist state, uh, Satan and overcome that temptation. I need to know the scripture. That's what, that's what we get. And yet, for some reason, we still have a problem with temptation in our life. And yet, we look at this entire chapter in Luke 4, and Jesus in the wilderness is just 13 verses out of this chapter, and there are stories surrounding it. And so tonight, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to look at the chapter within its context. What is the chapter telling us? Why are these surrounding stories here? Right? There's a reason why they have these surrounding stories. There's a flow here. And Luke is trying to give us a point here. When we read the scriptures, especially in the Gospels, we want to understand these stories because it puts emphasis on a specific point. And that's why. That's why we see Jesus baptized. There's a reason why we see then Jesus go into the wilderness to be tempted. And why he starts off his ministry the way Luke describes. He's telling us something. We also have to, when we read this passage, put ourselves into the mind of the Jewish person at that time in the first century. That will help us understand a lot. That will help us understand how to apply this passage and what maybe they're thinking Because the Messiah is here, he's starting his ministry, and when they think of a Messiah that is the anointed one, the Christ, the Son of God coming, they're thinking of this physical king that's going to rise up, give them peace and prosperity, that's going to cleanse the land of this wickedness that is the wicked Romans, and unite, unite Israel again like King David did. And so we get this idea, they get this idea when we read Old Testament passages. For example, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus is going to read this very passage in Luke 4. But out of Isaiah, this is what we read. We read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of God, our God, to comfort all who mourn. So if I'm reading this from a first century Jewish mindset, this is very exclusive. I'm a part of God's chosen people, and this Christ will come and release the captives like we're in war, as they're in Roman captivity, and bring about God's vengeance here and comfort those who mourn at this time. And yet Jesus, being the Christ, he sees God's will differently than most people who are reading the scriptures at this time at least the Pharisees there. He knows something that's more important than those who are just focused on the physical at this time. And so now we read the temptations here, and I want you to read it with that mindset, those temptations, because Jesus would have been taught this by his friends and his family and the priests and everyone else who's studying the scriptures. Read the temptations with what they would expect the Messiah to be, and it gives it unique perspective. Begin with me, Luke 4. Luke 4, verses 1 through 13, says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, I will, it will all be given to you. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from him. Therefore, it is he will command his angels concerning you, guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We understand there's a lot of different you know, interpretations. We've heard a lot of different sermons on this, where many believe that you know, these temptations represent and symbolize different things. They symbolize it, the, you know, the attack on the Christian virtues of faith and hope and love. Or you may have heard famously that these temptations symbolize the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. And none of those are, are wrong. They make for great studies. But we have to remember the Jewish mindset this time. What he's being tempted as. You know, we have to remember Jesus would have been taught this physical Messiah coming to provide for his people to have this prosperous nation, to be divine. This is what they expected from the Son of God. And notice Satan throughout this passage telling Jesus, if you are the Son of God, you are going to do X, Y, and Z, these temptations. And so when we read within the context here, 
we can see that these temptations represent in many ways aspects of what they expect the Messiah to be or do. You see that? You see what he's being tempted on here? He's being tempted to be the physical Messiah everyone else is expecting. And we see these parallels even in Old Testament passages that prophesy about this Messiah. We see three parallels. Look in Luke chapter 4. Look at the first temptation in verse 3, this idea to provide. Obviously, to provide selfishly for himself during this time of fasting and this time for God. But he's providing here, and if he can provide and turn these stones here into bread, it shows, yes, he could provide physically for his people. And what do we read about this Messiah coming that he will do? For example, out of Ezekiel 34, verses 23 to 24, we're told, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. There's a parallel there. Look at the second temptation in verse 5 where he's, you know, he's tempted to be a ruler, and not just any ruler. Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, this I will give to you. Think about the good you might be tempted to, to bring into the world if you ruled all the kingdoms of the world. The peace and the prosperity that the Jewish people are expecting this Messiah to bring and what they read, for example, in Isaiah 9, verse 6, that for to us, a child is born to us, it is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then you read, you see in verse 9, that third temptation as well. This temptation to prove his divinity. Look, throw yourself off this temple. You don't have to die in the way that maybe you expect. God is going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. He's providing for you. You can rule forever. As we see in Isaiah 9 verse 7, of the increase of his government, and of the peace, there will be no end of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is what they're expecting to some degree if we can misinterpret and misinterpret these passages here. And think like the Jewish people, many at that time. Everything Satan is tempting him with matches with the current understanding that the people expect this Messiah to be to save them, the Son of God. And here it is. Everything they're hoping for, everything that they believe in, everything that they've been taught being handed to Jesus here on a silver platter. You can be the Messiah that everyone is hoping for. But the thing is, Jesus understands that there's something more important here. He's not meant to free them necessarily from physical captivity from the Romans, but to save them from their sins, to save us from our sins. That's what he understands as his mission and his purpose. And what this goes to show is that what God desires is more important than what we desire. And that's often what temptation is. It's an opportunity, a moment in time where now there's a conflict or a possible conflict of interest. And I have the opportunity now to choose either my desires, which are often physical desires, or I can then choose God's desires and what he wants 
for my life. And that should be a reminder for all of us, especially as we go into the new year. We're full of excitement. We're full of hope, ready to change for 2024. And that's all great. But those goals that we have, those things that we want to do, the, is it what God desires? I hope that it is. Because what we want will never, never last. But what God wants lasts forever. And that's, a, of course, a little nod to our legacy and our, our theme this year of legacy. Is we want to build a legacy on what God desires, not our own desires. And yet, as Christians, we can be tempted to conform Satan into our image. And that's, that's easy to do, right? That's the easy thing. We can just make Jesus you know, change some things here and not have to change ourselves. Instead of putting in the work, doing the hard things, doing the thing that God desires from us and to conform ourselves into his image. That's what God wants from us. And yet we see the themes of Jesus' temptations from Satan in the following stories of Luke chapter 4. That's why they're all connected here. Instead of listening to Satan, when he says, look, if you are the Son of God, you're going to do this, Jesus shows everyone else in those stories that he is the Son of God by what he does and what he says according to God's desires. And so start with me. Look at Luke chapter 4. Look at verses 14 through 15. Because Jesus, he overcomes that temptation. He leaves the wilderness and he's living and breathing the gospel. He's doing amazing things. And this is what we read. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through, throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So now it's time he goes back to Nazareth, back to his hometown They've heard rumors about him. He goes back. He teaches in the synagogue. He reads the prophetic passages, one of Isaiah 61 that we just read there. And they basically say, look, okay, if you're the son of God, you're the Messiah that we read about in Scripture that you just read, prove it to us. Look at Luke 4, verses 22 through 23. All were speaking well of him and were amazed at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself, prove it, and say what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown too. But the thing is, they don't believe him. They don't believe that this is the Messiah that they read about in scriptures, that they've been taught about. Jesus is not the Messiah that they're hoping for. And so they get very angry when they want to throw him basically off a cliff. Continue in Luke 4, look at verse 28. When they heard these things, he gives a nice long sermon here, a short sermon. It says, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You see the connection there from Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan and what we read in that story. Because ironically, Satan was the last person to want to try to throw Jesus off a high place. And yet what happens? He simply just passes through their midst. I don't know how, but that's what he, that's what he does. And yet what's crazy is you would think, Jesus, just let them. 
let them just throw you off that cliff if what Satan said was true, that God is going to you know, provide for you and have his angels pick you up so that your foot doesn't touch a stone. That's not what he does. That would have made a real impression. Maybe even some would then believe that you are the son of God. But again, he just passes through their midst. Again, it's not so much what Jesus could do as much as it is at this point about who he is, who he was. He's not the Messiah that they had in mind, and they're not going to believe him, whatever it is that he does. And so then we look at the second thing. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 33 through 36. We see the same here of Jesus' previous temptations. And yet he may not be a literal king over a physical kingdom over Israel, but he is a king over a spiritual kingdom. And when he goes now, he moves to Capernaum, and he's teaching in the synagogue. He meets a demonic man, and this is what happens in verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. We read that, we realize, thinking about the temptations that Jesus went through, who did Satan think that he was? Jesus was already king of something greater, greater than any physical kingdom on earth. And this demon realized it. You are the Holy One of God. And he had the power and the authority to command this demon to do whatever he wanted. There's no need at that point for a physical kingdom. And yet not long after, it goes on to show another story in Luke 4. Look at verse 38. Just as easy as turning physical stones into bread, he does something even better, not not selfish at all. He heals Peter or Simon's mother-in-law in verse 38. We read, and he arose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid hands on each one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are what? You are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew, they knew that he was the what? The Christ. I love the irony there in that story for two reasons. First is that he didn't have to necessarily provide for himself. He provided for others and they blessed him. And that's a lesson for us, especially all of us. Is that, yeah, we may not be able to miraculously heal people but we can certainly give the others even more than people deserve. Because we know, as Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive. And so I pray as we go into the new year that we have a heart like Jesus, ready to give, ready to serve, 
But notice the second thing in verse 41. What are the demons saying? The demons are saying, look, you, you're the son of God. This passage in verse 41, this verse, and what Satan says to Jesus, telling him, look, if you are the son of God, acts as two bookends for the context of this passage in Luke 4. But why did Jesus stop the demons here from telling at least a truth? Doesn't he want people to know, as the demons know, that he is the Christ? You would think, right? You would think. But the thing is, he's allowing the gospel to speak for itself. He's allowing his life to enter the hearts of the people. His actions we read throughout his entire ministry are often louder than his words, and he speaks the most profound words in human history. He was, he was the son of God. He was the Messiah. He was the Messiah God desired him to be. Not because, not because he knew all the scriptures, not because he went to synagogue every single week, because he had a beautiful singing voice, because he was a dynamic speaker, while all those are, are very important, great gifts or, or necessary. That's not how they knew him as the Christ. And often that's not how people know us as Christians. They knew Jesus was a Christ because of what he did, how he served God, what he did for them, who he was in their life. People know that we follow Jesus by how we follow God, by how we love God and love others and what we do and who we are in their life and how we can serve them. And yet what we see from these stories here, after the temptation, when Jesus escapes Nazareth, when he heals this demonic man, when he heals Peter's mother-in-law, is that Jesus is following God's will according to the scriptures. It may not be exactly as many are expecting, but these stories replay the temptations here in the wilderness in a way where Jesus shows that he is the son of God, God's way, not man's. He doesn't allow himself to be thrown off a cliff, just like he didn't allow Satan to trick him in jumping off the temple. He casts out a demon, a demon that knows he is the Holy One of God, which shows that he's king of something more than just a physical kingdom, of a spiritual kingdom. And he heals people, people like Mary, like, a, like a Simon's mother-in-law there. And that's an amazing thing, because he doesn't just do it for her, but for so many in that area. And it goes to show that he provides in ways that he knows they need, and they need a Savior, someone to save them from their sins. We should desire to be who God wants us to be. Not who others think we should be, or who we might fantasize about being. And so this evening, I want to remind you to be followers of Jesus the way God desires you to be. Overcoming evil and temptation more than just, we do that more than just knowing the scriptures. We overcome evil and temptation by doing what we read in the scriptures. Jesus, yes, he knew the scriptures, but every time he refuted Satan with a passage, he was doing what we read in the scriptures. That's powerful. It changes our life. That's what we need to do. And so it may, it seems important that we, we do not conform Jesus into our image, the image of ourselves. That's a big mistake, and that's what Satan wants. Satan wants to feed us temptations and sins that will change us. 
that will change us for the worse, that will fantasize, that we fantasize, look, this is who you can be without God, or even with God if you just worship me. But Jesus knows three things. You see, Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows his purpose and his mission. And Jesus also knows his God. And those three points should stand out in this chapter. And we should ask ourselves, do we know who we are? Do we know our purpose and our mission? And we'll read that here in a second. And do we know God? We may be tempted to be someone else, maybe even have a different life. But Jesus didn't allow the pressure of other people's opinions to decide who he should be. He didn't allow Satan to control his life or his narrative. And we shouldn't allow evil to control our life or or our narrative. Jesus comes, he comes out of the wilderness. He's ready to go. He's filled with the spirit and the spirit is guiding him. And as we leave here tonight, that's the same thing that I desire for you, for all of us, as we go about our week. Read what Jesus says at the very end of this chapter. It's powerful. It's, it's our purpose. It's what Jesus' purpose was. In Luke 4, verses 42 through 44, when he says, And on his day he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him for, from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judah. Jesus' purpose is much like our purpose in a way, to preach, not necessarily in the way that maybe I'm doing tonight, but in the way that we live and how we live out the good news of the kingdom of God. The entire point of this chapter, why we read the those stories after the temptations, is to show that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of God because of how he lives according to God's purpose. God gave him that purpose. And of course, that looks different in action between each person. That's the great thing about the kingdom of God is that we are made in his image and he is our king and we follow him. And so this evening, if you feel maybe like you're weighed down by sin, And by life, if you've been looking for Jesus, if you're looking in the wrong place, if you're looking within yourself, he's he's here today for you. Believe in Jesus, not just as a good person, but as the Son of God. And be baptized today, allowing him to wash away your sins. If that's what you want tonight, then come forward now while we stand and we sing.